This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me and I'm flying solo because everybody's decided to abandon me or they've become sick. So it's just me. But I've got a really interesting guest. We've been chatting literally before we start the podcast. I think I could chat with this gentleman probably for another good hour and a half. But my guest today is Michael Hollington, who is a writer of historical fiction. He's here to talk to us about his first book, The Time of Cherries, set in France during the late 19th century. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be here. I'm really interested because we've actually been talking, obviously I don't want to reveal too much, but we've been talking about your second book that you're working on as well, which is quite interesting. And I've my interest has been piqued. And then obviously we jumped into a little bit of my my time period here, which is all very uh, interesting. What actually got you interested in doing a historical fiction? Well, actually... Uh, Cherries is my third novel. Okay. So I started in 2006. I bought a computer for the first time and I, I started fiddling around with the keyboard, trying to get familiar with the keyboard. And I suddenly started finding myself uh, writing a novel, which was about, it was a hit and run accident in Chelsea. So I, I finished that. And I, I, that's, I, I self-taught. I didn't go to any writing courses on purpose because I didn't want to be influenced by anybody except for myself so i wrote i wrote the hit and run novel from 2006 to about 2012 then i had to go back to work in hong kong in 2008 so that sort of delayed my writing process but then i wrote a second novel about hong kong and it's called lost in hong kong and it's about um a genius battery scientist from Cambridge who gets mixed up with a very nasty um, Hong Kong billionaire and his daughter who falls in love with him. So that was my second novel. My third novel is The Time of Cherries, and I'm working on a fourth novel, which is this First World War love triangle spy female hero uh, novel. Oh, we've got to get you on when that that comes up and we'll make sure Alex and we'll get some of our World War One historians to come in and, and chat with you because they're they're much more they're much more knowledgeable about that time period than I am. But it all does sound interesting. We do love a uh, love triangle, we do love spies. I think it all kind of works quite well in a novel, which would be quite gripping at the end. Yeah. Well, Cherries actually has 
I wouldn't say it a love triangle in it, but it ends on a, a promise of love from the person that rescues her, who actually is her stable boy from 10 years before. He, he, he's actually, this is at the last week of the commune. Um, and the stable boy has become a legionnaire because he ran away from the, from, he ran away when she ran away from the, from her husband. And he disappears, but he comes back at the very end of the novel and rescues her from a firing squad. Oh, wow. Okay, do you know what? Let's get into the nitty gritty of this because I'm quite interested. I've actually started reading more historical fiction recently because I've been so deep in my studies and I work on such a depressing time period that putting myself out of that has been great. Can I put myself into a completely different world? So I'm really excited. We're getting a few fictional authors on and it's kind of given me this wide breadth of ability to disappear a little bit into these worlds so I'm quite excited to hear a little bit more and then I guarantee I will be buying a copy and sitting and kind of disappearing I need to know more but I'm don't spoil it for me too much oh damn it I've spoiled it for you <laughs> that's okay don't worry don't spoil it too much we we can get into this I will have uh what's the way of saying this I will see what's coming but don't give me too much of the nitty gritty. I want to be left on a cliffhanger. That's what I want to be left on. Yeah. Perfect. Right. Okay. So we have a protagonist, Kiki. She's set on buying, uh, oh gosh, I can't say this word properly. I'm not very good at French. Please apologize. Uh, Le Merle, is that how you say it? Yes, that means blackbird, the blackbird. Um, so protagonist Kiki is set on buying Le Merle, which you said earlier was uh, was a blackbird, literally which is her husband's family's vineyard. Correct. Question is, are her ambitions out of the times at this stage? Because we are sitting in the late 19th century. Women are still not seen as equal at this stage. Is she just too modern and is she just too independent? Well, um, a, lot of, a lot of women have, have and and still do leave the country for the big city for excitement to get out of their boring lives that happened then and it happens now coco chanel escaped from abject poverty in the early 1900s by the 1920s she was probably the world's most successful woman Lily Langtry escaped from Jersey in the 1880s, 1890s. So a lot of girls went to the city and a lot of them were very disappointed. Few succeeded. And those that had brains and that were unconventional had more chance of success. So it's the age of thing of girls or boys wanting to get out of the country and go to the big city and that's what happens to kiki i've got to say there's this i come across this sort of idea quite a lot down in even in the 19 
even in the 1930s, and we're now going into the 20th century here, where women who, like you said, they come from a small place and they have a bigger vision for themselves. They want more out of life than just that's, I don't know, being a mother with your children, a stay-at-home wife, they want more out of life. They want to have an education. They want to have <clears throat> a business. They want to be independent. Yep. Can you blame them? No, because I know exactly how that feels. Even though I lived in a big city, I had big aims in my life. And there were friends of mine who just didn't have as big aspirations as I did. I wanted to travel the world, you know, things like that. So in a way, I think the modern woman can quite, the right way of saying this, but the modern woman can really understand Kiki, I think, to a certain point. Well, I, and this applies to boys and men as well. I mean, I escaped, I escaped Britain in 1972 when I went to Brussels, and then ultimately I w- ended up in Hong Kong for 40 years. So it, it happens to both sexes. It's just a hell of a lot, lot more difficult for women, I think. A lot more difficult. So the important question here is, how bound were women by the patriarchy? And at that time period, is it even possible for women to be independent? Well, Kiki's husband is this horrible old man, three times her age. And they do a deal right at the beginning of the marriage. It's a sex. They have to have sex down to twice a week. She uh, has uh, a, hold on one second. It's like a schedule that they have to have sex twice yes. a week. Yes. Okay. Because she doesn't want to sleep with him. In she doesn't want to live in his bedroom. I'm not surprised. It smells of stale eau de cologne. It's got brocade curtains. She doesn't want to live in that bedroom. So she negotiates her way into her own room, which is down the corridor. And twice weekly, Monsieur Monnier visits her. And of course, he also pays her an allowance of 150 old francs um, a month. And when she's planning her escape, she has built up a balance of 650 francs. But when she goes to Bone to get the money out, she's only got 50 francs in the account because her husband, who is a gambler stroke dogfighter, has taken the money out of her account, which throws her into a panic. So He sounds like a very, I'm going to say this very sarcastically, a very charming man. Yes, he's horrible. He's a dogfighter, and she finds out about it, and he's gambling, and he's, there's this horrible Englishman called Sir Reginald Markham who's sort of sold him the dogs and is sort of leeching money out of him. So he's got a gambling problem. But he's got a very successful wine business, but money has been leached away, and so it, he takes it out of her, her bank, which he was able to do, of course. I mean, women, women had no rights. I, did, I, I don't think they had property rights. It was... No, I don't, I don't think they did. Yeah, so she is, and her, 
And there's another factor. She's got a, quite an unpleasant family. Uh, particularly, she's got a very unpleasant brother called Dagobert. Dagobert. So Dagobert does, a, does the deal with Monsieur Monnier because Dagobert wants some land to grow his own wine. And he does a deal. He gets half an acre of prime Merceau land. Well, actually, it's not that prime, but anyway. He gets a plot of land, half a hectare, which he gets for nothing, but Kiki has to marry Monsieur Monnier in, in exchange. So they do a deal. So she's the reason she wants to buy Le Merle, and and it's discussed in the book is she wants to get she wants to outdo her family, and she wants to get back what she right, rightfully believes is hers because she married Monnier, and Monnier is dead. He died when she was escaping. He was savaged by his dogs like Actian was in the, like Actian was in, you know, ancient history. So, but Kiki doesn't know that he's died from being savaged by his dogs. Anyway. <laughs> I've got to say, that's a really comeuppance. You get what you give, really. So he got exactly what he deserved. Yeah, but she didn't know that he had died until she had escaped and was living in Bone with her schoolteacher. Well, she was hidden away in Bone by her schoolteacher, who was the only person she could rely on. So, yeah, he got his just desserts. But then she has to escape. Then she has to escape because the police are after her because Monsieur Monnier's twin is a Paris policeman. Oh, plot twist. Yeah, I love this. Um, sticking on the subject of Kiki here, could yep. she have actually accomplished all of this given the time period this was actually all set in? Is well, this possible? She had lots of girlfriends. There's her 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 main her main friend at the beginning, and right the way through the book is um, Madame Thierry, and Madame Thierry is the headmistress of the school in which Kiki goes to in Bone. Okay? And Madame, Madame Thierry takes her in against her will when she's fleeing away after this escape. And Madame Thierry takes her in, but eventually the police cotton on to what's going on and, and they rehearse they rehearse her escape. So there's a knock on the door. She's out of there. She knows what to do. She's got the bag packed. She's gone. But she has a pretty harrowing escape. And then she walks She walks 25 miles during the middle of the night to where the canal is. To where, and, and so she eventually gets a lift on a barge that takes her to Paris. And the people on the barge are wonderful. They're a, a wonderful family, and they sort of take her in, and it gives the reader a bit of a break. So she ends, she ends up in Paris. And then 
she has to get a job. And she she gets a job um, gets a job in a hotel as a chambermaid. And so move, sorry to cut you off here. Moving oh. just a little bit slowly out into into uh, a little bit of history here. Yeah. Because your book also covers the Franco-Prussian War. Yes, it touches on the the the, the siege of Paris. Okay, so can you tell us, it's, uh, is it the EMS telegram? The EMS telegram. It's the EMS telegram. So how does the EMS telegram spark the Franco-Prussian War? And the second part of this question is, um, what were the Bismarck's motives in all of this? Right. Now, Bismarck had, by this time, we're talking about 1870, he had consolidated the northern German states, okay? And he did that through diplomacy, uh, the Austro-Prussian War of 1866, which was basically the German states versus German states. He won that war. So he consolidated the the Northern Federation the North German Confederation. He wanted to consolidate the whole of Germany. In other words, he wanted to bring in the four southern states like Bavaria into Germany. Because Germany historically was fractured into lots of, I think it was 50, I think it was 50 something states. Okay. So Bismarck was the man that welded them all together. And he needed he needed an excuse to unite the southern states into the northern into the northern confederation, and that was by going to war with France. Now France was number one in Europe at the time. Napoleon had been in power for twenty years. He had won a battle against the Australians in Italy, so he was he was feeling quite puffed up, and. He was his regime was corrupt, but people, funnily enough, quite liked him. Anyway, <clears throat> he was he was he was vain. He was he was vain, basically, and he was pretty sort of he pulled it full of himself. So Bismarck, Bismarck sort of trapped him and. The trap was basically the, a thing called the Holohosen succession. And the Holohosen succession was that the Germans wanted to input a German, um, a German prince, a Prussian prince, onto the throne of Spain. Because the throne, uh, Spain's throne was vacant at the time. Now, the French hated this idea and managed to scupper the plan. So the Prussians did not become the kings of Spain. But anyway, it was, this then sort of resulted in the the Ems telegram came about when the king of Prussia was in Bad Ems, which is a spa town. And the, and the French, the French, um, 
ambassador was sort of kneeling him, niggling him and goading him and wanting to have a meeting. And, and Bismarck somehow, I think he might have even redrafted the Ems telegram, turning down the ambassador, snubbing the ambassador. And this, it sounds ridiculous, but this spurred the French into a war. Absolutely ridiculous. So the Ems telegram, I think, was the 13th of June, July. The Ems telegram was the 13th of July. And three days later, the, the French assembly de declared war on the Prussians. <laughs> it's, it's, it seems incredible, but that's what happened. I think, I think Napoleon wanted a war, actually. I think he wanted a war. Are we surprised? Yeah, this is Napoleon III, of course. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Like grandfather, like grandson? Is that why no. you're saying it? He was, Napoleon I was Napoleon III's great uncle. Like great uncle, like hang great... On, no, hang on, no, um, his uncle, his uncle. Yeah, his uncle. Like family, like family. Let's roll with that one. <laughs> yeah, but Napoleon III was nothing like Napoleon the First. Napoleon the First was was brilliant. Napoleon the Third was not so brilliant. And by this time, he was older. He was, his health wasn't good. He should never have gone into this war. It was quite ridiculous. So, sticking with the Franco-Prussian War, <clears throat> how does it actually compare to the others? And how did this idea of a commune come about? Well, let me handle the first part. The Franco-Prussian War was a bit like the Napoleonic Wars in terms of weaponry, although for the first time, breech-loading artillery was used. So rather than shoving the, the ball or the shell down the muzzle, you put it in... You put it in the bottom of the barrel via a breech. So it was far more 
efficient and you could fire shells more quickly. So I believe that the Franco-Prussian War was the first time that um, breech-loading artillery was used. And of course, Krupp produced <clears throat> the artillery for the Prussians, and it was far better than the French artillery. On the other hand, the French had a, um, had a better rifle uh, that could fire a longer range and it was um it was a it was just it was just a, a better implement but the french were very disorganized the germans of course were very organized and it it didn't take them long before they got to paris the big battle was the battle of sedan and that's basically when the french lost the war anyway so the germans turn up and I think about September, October, they surround Paris. And you have to realize that Paris at that time was surrounded by forts, which essentially is the Perifique ring road. But it was surrounded by forts. And um, so we have the siege, we have the balloons, and Kiki works in a balloon factory as a spy. She's blackmailed into spying in a balloon factory and she leads a team of seamstresses. Um, anyway, it's all, it's, there's, there, and, and food prices escalate, there's starvation, the zoo, they even eat the animals in the zoo. And they were selling elephant, elephant steaks. Um, and things got worse and worse and worse. And eventually, the armistice was signed at the beginning of March 1871. Okay. Now, the reason the, the, the commune came about was that the Parisians were so anti-government because they got France into this war. They were so anti-government and, and infiltrated by what I would call proto-communists because the communards actually influenced uh, people like Lenin and Marx. So these proto-communists took control of Paris. The, the, the government uh, retreated, first of all, to Bordeaux and then to Versailles. So the, the government was exiled, if you like, to Versailles. And the communards had control of Paris for just over 10 weeks. So the Versailles government gets its act together and basically there's a civil there's a civil war happening. And basically the Versailles government invades well, bombards Paris to start with, and then invades Paris. There are nine hundred barricades in Paris. And in one bloody week, the time of cherries, um it's believed that 20,000 people were killed, mostly communard. So the commune was was eradicated and the problem solved for the government. So obviously all of this is included in your book. Yep. The commune. Yep. First of all, there's again another two-part question, apologies. What were the consequences of 
the commune and how does this kind of get into the plot of your book well it it doesn't really because don't get we're concentrated 100% on kiki and but she manages to become a spy she's blackmailed again into becoming a spy and she ends up as Raul Rigo's assistant and Rigo is the is the communard police, uh, chief of police and he's he's 24 years old and he's on a complete ego trip and he's killing people and he's he's just behaving very badly he has bacchanalian feasts i mean he's a shocker he's a real shocker and she is working for rigo and is able to report back on barricades and all sorts of things to um to the versailles government via via her brother-in-law the twin of a of her husband who who has blackmailed her into doing this so eventually she gets rumbled and um, thrown into prison and awaits execution now britain ah, clearly britain. must have some sort of interest let's say in the war or in the commune itself which side is kiki on at this stage well kiki's on her own side when she's she's obviously she's obviously she's pro commune in sort of spirit but she's very practical and when she sees what the communards are actually doing and realizing how corrupt and incompetent they are she veers back her sympathies veer back to the main government but but not in any sort of strong fashion but the main the main nasty in this book is an english aristocrat called sir reginald markham who's the man if you remember that inveigled her husband into dogfighting and markham reappears and he rapes her and that is how the blackmailing comes about into her being blackmailed as a, as a, as blackmailed into becoming a spy but markham actually it turns out markham is a uh, is a is an english spy and i I've, I've taken a bit of a life, bit of a license here but it all gets revealed when she when she comes up against markham and markham's basically saying we we um we support france because because we didn't want we don't want prussia to become powerful so it was classic british foreign policy which was support the weaker side in europe against the the stronger side rather like we supported poland against the nazis always support the weaker side that was foreign policy and so he was engineering this yeah he's not a, he's a, he's the main nasty in the book <laughs> so every single one of our authors especially fiction authors gets asked this question i mean we've already had this conversation before we went live so we're going to have to repeat this conversation again i do apologize but what kind of research did you do in preparation for the story did you go and visit these places what did yeah. you do yes i mean i i I spent a wonderful week in Paris 
pre-COVID, walking the streets just so her journeys were logical. Um, so that was that was a lot of fun. I went to I went to the Invalids Military Museum. I went to I just went all over all over Paris. It was great fun, and um, I I followed the canal up from. I've basically followed her canal journey up from um, from Bone. I followed that journey. Um, I read. If you look at the back of the book, there there's some acknowledgments. I read. I think I read eight books on the war and on the commune and. There was one book actually that was marvelous. It uh, it describes how the balloons were made. So when Kiki was a seamstress, I th I, I think I got it right because um, the, the 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 balloons were sewn together. They had teams of seamstresses seamstresses, yeah, stitching the bits together to make a balloon. <clears throat> so yeah, a lot of research. And then the other important question is obviously language develops and it's not the same language that we use today. How did you manage to kind of use the language that they used at that time in your book? Well, I haven't. I haven't. But I have avoided all modern words. I mean, oh, I, was, interesting. I was watching a historical novel, uh, historical drama on the television the other day and i think it was for 400 years ago and somebody said okay i was absolutely <laughs> okay can you believe that so i studiously avoid all modern words and of course croissant didn't exist oh really and when did no. that word come about there were croissants but they weren't called croissants but I think croissant came about in the, the beginning of the uh, 19, uh, 20th century. The baguettes, the baguettes existed, but they were sort of sticks of bread. Again, I think in about the 1920s, baguette became um, acceptable. Brazier, uh, bra, uh, braziers didn't exist. They either wore, women either wore corsets or wore bindings, a sort of strip that they bound themselves with. So we, we don't have braziers, baguettes, or croissants. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, we, any... do, we do have croissants, but they're not called croissants. What do you call them in the book? I I don't. Um, I often refer to brioche, brioche, which is a sort of cake-like bread. Oh. I love a good brioche with chocolate in it. Yeah, so I I I, I refer a lot to brioche. I think I refer to sticks of bread. Oh, interestingly, I told you about Rigaud and his Bacchanalian feasts. Well, I actually found a bill to one of his breakfasts. Oh wow! Have, yeah, I actually have got a bill on my on my phone that. Is one of his breakfasts, and Kiki is inveigled into this into this breakfast, and in the end, she has to she has to settle the bill. So I know exactly what they drank. Even at the end of the breakfast, they had uh, they had Spanish cigars. 
how how much did the breakfast cost? Do you remember? Yes, it cost something like seventy eight old francs. Now, you've got to remember that in nineteen sixty, the old franc became the new franc by knocking off two zeros. So, if you like, in nineteen sixty, a hundred old francs equaled one new franc. Okay, and there are six point three francs to the euro so 78 old francs is nothing it's absolutely nothing in today's oh, wow. yeah i mean some of us can go out for breakfast and easily <clears> spend <throat> 120 pounds nowadays <laughs> well i'd love to come to one of your breakfasts oh <laughs> that involves uh, a, a late breakfast with a mimosa and <laughs> We'll have afternoon tea the next time I'm back in the UK. Oh, they were drinking all sorts of exotic wines. I think they had champagne. I mean, these guys, these communards were living it up. They were killing people. They were having sex. They were boozing it up, eating. They were having, they were, they knew, they knew that the end was around the corner. And they were making sure they went down big time i guess that is that way if something's going down you might as well enjoy go down it. in flames <laughs> exactly might as well enjoy the finer things in life you know absolutely. I absolutely i totally get that listen michael i'm excited to hear more about you obviously your second book uh, by the way while we've been chatting i've already put your book on my list of books to buy when i'm back in the uk so yeah. that for sure is going to be fully read because, like I said earlier, I'm so invested in reading historical fiction. I think sometimes... you can get it on. I think it's available on Amazon. Oh, we're 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 going to be avoiding that uh, that that shop because what we're trying to do is encourage our local booksellers okay. as well, especially yeah, yeah. after COVID and things yeah. like that. <clears throat> but if if the only option you have is to go to that rainforest themed shop <laughs> yeah. then then please do so obviously but also support your local bookshops michael yes, yes. can you remind our listeners the name of this book so they can go and get it right it's called the time of cherries and the reason it is called the time of cherries is because some french refer to the last week of may 1871 as le temps de cerise the other name that week has is um, Semen Sanglant, which means bloody week. Oh. 20,000 people died in that one week. 20,000. Wow. The thing about the commune is, is not very well known in, in Britain because the French Revolution sort of is the main revolution. It dominates revolution. But then you've got Les Miserables, I think that's that's the revolution of 1835 or 1830, I'm not sure. But there, there were something like four revolutions leading up to the Commune. The Commune was the second most bloody of the French revolutions. But it's not well known in it's not well known in Britain. At least I don't well, think it's well known in Britain. This is also another positive of historical fiction, especially if it's written well and researched well. 
that it kind of brings to light other aspects of history that some of us historians tend to forget. Yeah. So do go grab yourselves a copy, have a read. We'll get it in our bookshop for everybody. So we get a slice of it. You get a slice, much much bigger slice, and uh, the, that rainforest-themed place gets no slice of it. And we support our local bookshops at this time. But Michael, thank you so much for joining us. It's been absolutely excellent having you on. That was most enjoyable, Lena. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.